The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Tech Sequences. In 1996, a world-renowned chess grandmaster faced a career-defining match against a novice. So convinced was he of winning that he scoffed at an offer to split the half-million-dollar purse 60-40. He wanted all or nothing. Although Gary Kasparov, the grandmaster, won this match 4-2, his victory was not as easy as he predicted. He lost the first game to his opponent, a novice on the competition circuit, IBM's Deep Blue. Just a year later, Gary Kasparov would lose more decisively, this time resigning the game after just 19 moves. Incredulous of his loss, he would later accuse Deep Blue's programmers of cheating or even having human assistance. However, the truth was that at that time, not even Deep Blue's programmers could fully explain what happened. The explanation came a few years later and was decidedly far less exciting. What accounted for Deep Blue's win was very likely a bug in its code. Skill at chess requires visualizing the various possibilities your move may unlock for your opponent and strategizing based on the likely set of moves and counter moves needed to secure a win. The glitch in Deep Blue's programming was that when faced with too many options and no clear preference, the computer chose a move at random. Kasparov would later write that, quote, the machine refused to move to a position that had a decisive short-term advantage. It was, he said, quote, showing a very human sense of danger. Kasparov expected Deep Blue to crunch numbers. Instead, a random move by the supercomputer led him to ascribe human feelings to the computer as an explanation for the unwarranted move. That random move threw Kasparov off his game and cinched Deep Blue its historic victory. Kasparov's view of the future echoes what humans have done for centuries, namely to anticipate some of the many possibilities that can happen in the future and narrow the possibilities as the future draws closer. The anticipation is a paleolithic strategy. Our approach to the future has been rooted in imagining a set of possibilities conditioned on our observations and experience and selecting a preferred outcome to work towards. However, as anyone who's lived in the last few decades can attest, the future arrives all at once and bears little to no resemblance to what was predicted or even anticipated. Outlier events such as the rise of the internet, 9-11, the 2008 global financial crisis, the pandemic, and the Russo-Ukrainian conflict have increased the complexity of our world in ways that we are still trying to fathom. Our world is more chaotic and unpredictable. Technology who we have harnessed to help us deal with complexity in many ways adds to it. Take machine learning, for example. Machine learning, or ML as it is referred to, is a branch of artificial intelligence premised on the idea that a computer continually learning from vast amounts of data can identify patterns and make better decisions with little to no human intervention. However, explaining how the machine arrived at that decision, well, that's the hard part. So if our modeling of predicting and controlling the future are outdated, what works? Should we be predicting the future or mining the possibilities? Our guest today is Dr. David Weinberger. 
David has been a fellow, senior researcher, and member of the Fellows Advisory Board at the Berkman Klein Center since the early 2000s. He was also a co-director at the Harvard Library Innovation Lab, a journalism fellow at Harvard's Shorenstein Center, an advisor to presidential campaigns, and a Franklin fellow at the U.S. State Department. For two years, David served as a writer-in-residence at Google's People and AI Research Group, PEAR, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He also edits the Strong Ideas Open Access book series for the MIT Press. Trained as a philosopher, he explores the effect of technology on ideas. More specifically, he has explored the effect of the internet and AI on knowledge, on how we organize our ideas, on the disruptive architecture of the web, and on the core concepts by which we think about our world. His fifth and latest book, Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and How We're Thriving in a New World of Possibility, explores how machine learning is changing our ideas about how the future happens, enabling us to acknowledge the chaotic unknowability of our everyday world, a Copernican-scale change in our self-understanding. David's writing has been featured in Harvard Business Review and Wired, and hundreds of his articles have appeared in journals as diverse as Scientific American, The Atlantic, The Chronicle of Higher Ed, Slate, Salon, Smithsonian, USA Today, CNN, and TV Guide. Welcome, David. Hello. So our old mental model of anticipating a future and imagining a set of possibilities and narrowing them down as the future gets closer is very similar to anyone doing business planning or even saving for retirement. It's what we've done for most of our lives and even what we were taught in school. The thought that it is no longer relevant is kind of a scary idea. So why is this model not effective anymore? And why should we be optimistic about that? Well, it continues to be as effective as it always has been, which is uh, pretty good. You know, um, we we generally make it through the day alive uh, <laughs> because we look both ways before we cross the street and we anticipate that there might be an issue crossing the street and we we prepare for it by looking. Um, and that's been the, the core strategy of strategies. And um, I wouldn't want to suggest that we should not engage in that. But there's a sense in, in which what's predictable in our lives, those are the outliers. Much of our life is relatively predictable, but it's overwhelmed by unpredictable details and particulars that don't matter to us. So we pay no attention to them, generally, and we write them off as accidents, not in the sense of a car crash, all that's one obviously, you know, pretty bad type of accident. But um, as things that they just, they happen, it's just too complex and crazy. And so, I mean, why are those people in the crosswalk with you? Exactly those people. It's all determinate. At least let's for the moment say that it is. I don't want to, you know, we don't have to get into free will at the moment, but it's all determinate. Is it determinate as we think it is? It's not planned out ahead. It's the result of everything affecting everything else all the time, at every moment. But we pick out the stuff that is predictable uh, in our lives, that is under our control, because that's an effective strategy. It makes us feel better because we feel most of what's in our life is under control. But I think if anybody thinks about it even a little bit, as people do, everybody does, we realize just how wildly unpredictable our lives is, or our lives are. Um, whether it's you know the the bus that we didn't see, um, which would be very unfortunate when crossing the street, or much smaller things. Ah, uh, got into work and the coffee machine is out of coffee. Damn it! 
If I had known that, if I could have anticipated that, I would have gotten a cup of coffee. We, that's that's the normal. The normal is the accidents and the happenstances of of life. And one of the really, really remarkable things about the internet, for all of its many bad things, so much of the internet's success, um, the good things about it, um, and the way that it has become so dominant in our lives are due to a really radical change in our fundamental strategy towards the future, which since Paleolithic times has been anticipate and prepare. Anticipate you're going to need more axes tomorrow or arrows because you're going to, birds are in season or whatever it is. I'm obviously not very well versed in Paleolithic uh, you know, life. So you make you make the arrows. And if you're wrong and you come across mastodons and you didn't prepare spears, then you either lost an opportunity or you're in trouble. But this has been our basic strategy all along, anticipate and prepare. And it works really pretty well. But on the internet, of course, there's a lot of that that goes on too, but really distinctive things about the internet have very purposefully avoided anticipation, anticipating what's going to happen. Ultimately, the architecture of the internet is designed exactly to support unanticipation as a strategy. That is, we don't know what the internet's going to be used for, um, said the original designers. Uh, so let's not optimize it for anything in particular. Let's leave it as it's just going to move bits around because we do not want anticipating what it would be used for would mean that we would design it in a way that would make it less optimal for things we didn't anticipate. But you also see it in things that happen on the internet, like the minimum viable product um, strategy, which has been around now for like 20 years. Jeez. And it has been adopted by very large, you know, Dropbox and others. It says, uh, well, rather than being Henry Ford, who went into hiding for eight months with a handful of engineers in a relatively small room and designed perfectly because he was a genius and a anti-Semitic Nazi backer, but we'll leave that out. Because Henry Ford was a uh, was a genius of marketing, he and his set of pals anticipated what the market wanted in a car. And they they produced it. And they did not change it for 19 years. So that's great anticipation. They sold 15 million of them, Model T. They made very small changes, but you know, really small changes. That's been the strategy. A company like Dropbox and adopting the minimum viable product uh, approach instead says, well, no, we don't know what people are going to want. We can't know. How could we possibly? There are a lot of people. How could we possibly know what everybody's going to want from it? So let's launch a product with one key feature that we're pretty sure people are going to want, which is automatic backup, seamless backup onto the web. And we'll sell it. People will pay money for it. So this is not a beta. You know, people will pay money for it. Um, and then we'll see what they want, how they use it, what they tell us, what they're talking about on, you know, in public forums about this product and the like. And that will tell us what do they want next. And that's what Dropbox has done and developed develop a very full product. They purposefully held back from anticipating. And that MVP strategy is really common online in the tech world. The same thing with the use of APIs or application programming interfaces. Dropbox has one. Slack has one. A lot of companies, a lot of products have them. An API allows a developer anywhere on the web to use the sort of inner services of a, of a product to uh, alter the way that it works to integrate it into their own workflow or their company's workflow, 
to add features that the company may not have, the original company may not have thought of, it may be too niche for them. And this putting up an API is a way of allowing unanticipation to happen. And it, it's, it makes products way more useful. It's just one other quick example. And this really, this is the oldest of them all, because this is actually pre-internet. Some of the earliest computer games started allowing users to create mods, that is, new maps, new versions, um, as these games got more sophisticated, to add new features, new rules, to make entirely new games out of it, to make physics simulators out of a game, and all the rest of it. And sometimes actually giving users the same tools that their own internal developers had. And so you get a game like Minecraft that allows this. It has sold over 200 million copies. I mean, it's a pretty big, this is a very big business. And yet they allow people to create their own worlds in Minecraft and alter Minecraft in ways that Minecraft wouldn't have thought of and may not have liked, might not have been for everybody. And this ad just keeps adding value to the game. So we're, the internet, there's many more examples. I find it astounding that the internet has reversed this paleolithic strategy of strategies, anticipate and prepare. Instead, no, hold back as much as you can. Don't try to over-anticipate what people are going to want and give people the tools by which they can make what they want because it's a big world and we can't anticipate. And if we could, we couldn't provide the stuff that people needed. So I just want to one of the quick examples, just really fast. iPhone, right? I mean, there was virtually nothing in the original iPhone that had not already been in other phones, except for the App Store. You know, two million apps in the App Store. That is on anticipation, very large. I mean, that makes sense in terms of product development because the internet brings this impact of speed as well as multiple you know users that you wouldn't have had. I mean. Previously, you would have maybe a focus group, you'd have to organize them, bring them somewhere. The internet is just right there and there, and you can you know, choose hundreds or thousands if you want. Um, but in your book, you make this case, and, and tell me if I'm off track, that the future is happening faster than we ever anticipated. You know, All these black swan events are um, happening that really change the course of things. Um, and certainly, like you use the example of product development, um, it changes the strategy of how we do product development. But what about, I mean, product development is obviously tightly integrated with, let's say, company strategy. So as a company now trying to survive in this world, um, you know, back in the old days when you went to, to business school, they said, oh, you know, you create a three to five year, you know, business strategy plan. Now, many people laugh at you if you talk about a five-year plan. What kind of impact does that have, this concept, right, on what we should now do in terms of just business strategy planning? Is it ridiculous to, to um, create have a strategy for, you know, three years? Well, ridiculous is strong. It depends how firmly committed you are to it. I mean, you need a strategy because you need to make decisions about resources. Um, and there's at a certain level, yeah, you got to do that uh, unless you're Elon Musk, in which case you just make stuff up and do it on the instant. <laughs> and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but strategy, strategy in business is shockingly new. It, it's, um, strategy in military is, I'll say, surprisingly new. 
I'm, I think every everybody who gives a talk about business strategy mentions that strategy is the Greek ancient Greek word for for general. Um, but that's not, <laughs> yeah. But um, the person who distinguished tactics from strategy was Plato, first time. Hmm. But what Plato refers to as tactics is what we would think of um, as logistics, and what he, which is fine, it makes sense. And what when he introduces the concept of strategy, his example, his example is it's like a musician who's making up a song. It's improvising. It's cleverness. It's it's Odysseus, the the clever, the sly, um, able to, as we would now say, you know, sort of see an opportunity and pivot and seize upon it and the rest of it. it it's play. It is not what we now think of as strategy. It is the opposite of what we now think of as strategy. And military strategy only became a thing in the 18th century because up until that point, the idea behind this sort of strategy is that things are regular enough that you can sensibly make predictions and rely to some extent upon those predictions. Um, war was the um, the example of the most chaotic of human enterprises. I think it's less so now, but you know, back then it was just chaotic. That is, um, many small pieces uh, with some big events turning on very small events. I mean, that sort of chaos, really unpredictable. It was only in the 18th century that um, we in the West and Europe in particular started to think, oh, no, well, you know, there are some things that we can say. There are some laws and rules. This is all after um, the sort of Newtonian Enlightenment um, revolution in which we discovered that they were universal laws that were simply enough and that applied the same all throughout the universe, um, simply enough for us to understand them. And so, yeah, I mean, even war, it, there are some things we can say that are that's can serve as sort of principles. It's not physics, but, and so we start getting war strategies. Business strategy, sometimes you can um, sort of take it back to the 1920s, um, and that's a, a sensibly you can sensibly do that, but it was not a thing. It was a, more of an academic idea than anything. Um, a piece of evidence for this is that in the 1960s, Peter early 60s, Peter Drucker, who was the management guru of all time, um, very big name, and he was going to publish a book with the word a business book uh, with the word strategy in the title, and the publisher said said no, I'm. What's business strategy? Well, that doesn't make sense. And Drucker had to change the title of the book. It was not a common phrase. So all of this is really new, um, this sense of strategy. And it, it is 100%. Well, it's not, nothing's 100%. At least part of it is due, I imagine. So that's about as far from 100% as you can get um, to increasing anxiety about living in a world that's out of control. We want to believe and do what we can in order to control it. So I wonder if people sort of can relate to this viscerally, just having watched what happened during the, you know, the pandemic, the first two years of the pandemic, when a number of things that people could never have imagined would happen that were sort of bedrock 
facts in their universe got upended. I mean, I'm for me, one of the ones that really stuck for me was the Canadian U.S. border was closed for two years. It's like, what? <laughs> what? I mean, it just never could have imagined that would happen. And sort of in March 2020 onwards for several weeks, there were things that were going, you know, falling down around around your ears everywhere. Um, and is that sort of some of the same sense of um, learning to to learning where your predictions of, of what you consider to be expected futures may not be as reliable as you think and uh, and therefore sort of dealing in what's actual is the more important path forward? Yes, I mean, I think that's a, a big reminder that um, black swans are not the exception. Um, really damaging uh, black swans that sort of change everything. Uh, yeah, they, they are relatively exceptional. But, you know, a, a supplier's business burning down and now you don't have enough widgets to, you know, that's a black swan. It can be very damaging, could be fatal to a company, you know. It's not that unusual. That's not that's not a bolt of lightning hitting a chipmunk that then sets fire to you know a haystack. It's there's a fire in, in a warehouse or whatever. Um, black swans are the normal thing, unpredictable things. Um, devastating black swans are unusual, of course. Um, and it is important to you know think about the sort of resilience that. Um, our increasing awareness of black swans um, requires. Um, but I think there, there are other sorts of, so that's a really good example of a big, big black swan, a border being between the U.S. and Canada. Um, I mean, it's barely even a dotted line usually, and now it's closed down. World's longest undefended border. For now, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and if you do, please let me know, because I don't. Really um, it's just kind of vaguely burning. The, the other sort, the sort of the, the polar opposite of this are the butter, butterfly effects sorts of things, where it's, of course, very hard to trace actual butterfly effects, because that's the nature of butterfly effects. I mean, it's a weird example, made up example, it was a butterfly, a light. I can't never get the countries right. I don't remember. But in Argentina, and somehow there's a, tor that's a, a tornado in Beijing or something like that. And the whole point is, you can't imagine how that would happen, but it's conceivable that it would, um, because everything is connected and there can be cascades, small uh, change can set off a cascade throughout the various uh, causal and other networks that can connect the entire universe. Um, those sorts of, and I think we see this all the time on the internet. So um, it's, as I say, really by nature, really hard to see a butterfly effect. On the internet, we've gotten really used to them. Um, uh, they are when things go viral um that's a butterfly effect when you don't know why in fact if you've been in marketing as i have been and something goes viral you uh, from a competitor or anywhere else you are pretty sure that the boss is going to call you in and say we need one of those you know how that that ice bucket thing we should do that except we generate cash or just get our name out there remember the ice bucket challenge yeah, yeah. yeah the bucket of ice on your head it raised something over a hundred million dollars for was it als yes the power of marketing i can't i can't even remember what it was for exactly but yeah okay a ALS. um so all over 
I imagine the world in the U.S. There must have been conversation. I want one of them. Do that for me. And the whole point is, you can't. It's viral. You don't know why that of all the dumb and it's you know pretty much a dumb thing. All in favor of it, raise yeah. money, but dump a bucket. <laughs> Dump a bucket of ice over your head. You said, yeah, I'm going to start doing that. That's going to sweep the world and raise $130 million or whatever it was for a good cause. That's nuts. But we can see it happen. And we're not just there. All the stuff that sweeps through, we know we're getting through some set of butterfly effects. And sometimes we can see why it's within our network and so on. It's always forwarding stuff. But the internet is a, a chaotic. We live in the chaotic environment of the internet. And much of what most of us like about the internet um, are chaotic effects. It's the unpredictability of it. The mm -hmm. fact that we get lost for four hours, we end up on a page, we can't remember how we got there, or, or we cannot predict the web uh, history for the day. Um, terrible things happen because of this as well. But the fundamental nature of the internet it, it has trained us to benefit from and generally to like chaos and that is a very big change it's now normal chaos is now normal to us and we find good things about it as well of course as horrible horrible things you also make a point in your book about how we try to explain things that we cannot explain so um, you know machine learning you know having a machine learning system just giving it a whole bunch of data and then trying to explain how it arrived at a particular um, answer. Why, why is it significant? In other words, why should we, or why should we not try to struggle to find how, how this machine came up with a set of answers? There are some really pragmatic reasons, um, but I'm more interested in other reasons. But the pragmatic reasons are fairly straightforward. Um, if the thing's not working, you want to know, you want to debug it and you mm -hmm. want to know why it's giving you bad answers. Um, and especially if the thing is not working because it's giving you horribly biased answers that are making the world worse. When you're programming, you are building a model of a domain and you're doing it very consciously. And you, you turn that model into a working model. That's what the program does. With machine learning, you don't tell it what we humans know about a domain and its logic. You just give it data, tons and tons and tons of data. Um, you do make decisions about which data you think might be relevant and which you want excluded, like, for example, in many cases, uh, gender or race, um, although sometimes that's relevant. Um, but if not, you exclude it um, and you give it, you know, if it's hospital, if it's medical information, you might give it uh, with patient permission and all that sort of stuff, which is really important. You give it, um, tons and tons of anonymized data uh, about maybe, you know, everything you can find out about um, multiple patients' health that's been written down, data. Um, and you don't tell it what you know or what we think we know about what the symptoms are of this or that disease. Um, you instead uh, give it this data, you label um, the data that is of somebody who has been diagnosed with this or that disease. Um, and you see, you let it sort through that data to see if it can find correlations, some of which will be expected, I assume, and many of which may not be. They may be too insignificant for humans to rely upon, but in combination with other factors, 
they may turn out to be quite significant. And those relationships are not simple relationships. They are multidimensional. I mean, high, in some cases, high dimensionality, lots of things connected to lots of other things where those things are factors, elements, um, pieces, uh, types of data. Um, and the relationships may be so complex that we just, we can't figure out how it got there. But we may see it works pretty well. And so you end up having a conversation with your doctor at some point in the very near future, if not in some cases already, where the doctor says, okay, results of the checkup. Uh, it looks like, you know, you you seem to have like a 72% chance of coming down with type 2 diabetes. And you say, why? I, you know, exercise, I, I eat well. And the doctor says, don't know. That's what our machine learning thing says. And uh, we've seen that it's, you know, pretty accurate in its predictions. If it says 72%, you should, you know, probably should take that seriously. It's up to you. Um, and you might want to start cutting back or exercising more or whatever it is. And you'll have to decide. When you ask why the doctor may be able, may have to say, well, we don't know. We thought it used to correlate with this, that, and the other thing. And it seems to, that still seems to be a pretty good guy, but it's not as accurate as whatever this thing is looking at um, and how it's doing its calculations. Yeah, but medicine is a really interesting example because I think, uh, because in order to grasp what we know about medicine, there's been such a hyper-specialization in the study of it, right? So that many times somebody who understands one part of the body or one part of the body system really, really well is completely oblivious to other things. And, and you know, it's not quite a butterfly effect to say that if something goes wrong in one part of your body, there may be effects in other parts of your body, right? So, so the notion of throwing throwing all of the data at at a machine learning uh, algorithm and expecting it to come up with correlations that wouldn't be found by people who are hyper specializing in in spaces seems seems pretty reasonable in some way yes i i agree completely um people are hyper hyper specialized in medicine because it turns out even at in the sort of the smallest topic area that you pick it's insanely complex yeah. yeah the human body is insanely complex. I, I like to say, because I don't know if it's true, that human metabolism arguably is the most complex thing in the universe. I think if you, if as some people say, and I have no idea if it's hyperbole or not, the human brain is the most complex thing in the universe. It's a nice thing for humans to believe. In any case, human metabolism is incredibly ex complex. Just what goes on at a single cell wall is beyond... Humans can't hold all that in our head. It's a single cell wall. Um, there is a chemical can set off a, a, a cascade of information, so to speak, inside of the cell. Um, and machine learning turns out to be helpful at the cellular level. So if we are integrated whole bodies, which we seem to be generally, um, that have such a complex metabolism, then A, humans are going to get hyper-specialized very likely. Um, but a machine that can look at more than we can manage is likely to come up exactly as you say, but that's because of the complexity of the system. Human bodies are one type of complex system. The world is an even more complex system, if only because there are lots of human bodies on the planet and in the universe. Um, so the, the reason for the complexity in medicine is that the topic is itself insanely complex. But that's also the reason why we may not always be able to understand why it's giving us, the machine is giving us the answers that it did. It may not be a single butterfly. It may be that the podi podi podiatrists 
don't know that's important to look for a uh, boy. I'm out of my depth here, but you know, for <laughs> something in a toenail that turns out to be a signal that there's going to be some other larger effect because that thing in the toenail, I'm so sorry, may not by itself be a very strong indicator, but with some other set of um, wide ranging things about the body may turn out to be. This may be, I think it's reasonable to think that a complex system like the human body is going to be beyond our comprehension to hold all at once. I mean, and that that's the thing that, this is one of the reasons I'm so interested and excited by machine learning. Like everybody else, I'm appalled by the bias that it enables, um, for sure. But I'm I'm thrilled by the picture it's giving us of our world and our lives. We don't know how it works, but it works, and it works because the world is just that complex. And and humans' experience in sort of dealing with things that they can't explain has sort of varied over the years, right? I mean, over over the centuries, even. I mean, two hundred years ago, if there was something you didn't understand, it was magic, right? And now this this we're pretty sure this isn't magic. Um, but but at some point we're going to start ascribing, we're going to start you know personifying these things, right? Whether it's we're going to start personifying machine learning environments or AI environments, and you know in the context of a a very specific medical program where it's just asked to say you know what what is the what what diagnosis do you give a person with these with this detail about their state? Um, that's pretty. That's pretty easy not to turn into a warm and fuzzy human being in your mind. But when it's something like, you know, OpenAI's ch chat GPT, where you ask it a question and it will give you a well-formed answer written better than you probably can offer, then you're going to start wondering, you know, is there a little person in there somewhere? And, and you know, where where do we go with that when we start trying to understand, like, what, what makes us as humans different from these things that seem ever so much more human than us in some ways? It's a really important question. I don't know the answer. I mean, given history and even the very current history, we do seem to continue to anthropomorphize basically everything we touch. Uh, you know, it's just it's, we are <laughs> we are narciss a narcissistic uh, species. I mean, if only because we are. I don't know how to. Just the obvious thing. We see things through our own through ourselves. You know, and I think that's inevitable. And so, yeah, I think there's probably a pretty good example, a pretty good probability that we'll anthropomorphize these computers as well. I really hope we don't. Um, it's getting harder and harder when you have something like chat GPT, which is not only is it so good at conversing and formulating ideas and um, and occasionally hallucinating, as they say, which has become a technical term. It makes stuff up because it doesn't know it doesn't know anything about the world. It really honestly does not know anything. It knows a huge amount about how we put language together. But it it doesn't know. On a mailing list I was on, I, I am on yesterday, uh, somebody played with it and was asking about do the lifetimes of these two people overlap? and gave examples, you know, famous people, so it knows the dates. And it was confused about what it means for a lifetime to overlap. It was giving mainly right answers, but sometimes wildly wrong answers. And you'd say, do you know the dates? When? And yeah. Well, they don't overlap. And it would say, oh, sorry, I don't understand 
what over what a lifetime is or something. It does not understand any of this stuff. And it will be a while before I think we are able to give them concepts, if ever. It doesn't understand causality, which is another big issue and easy for it to make mistakes that way. So you have, not only do these large language models uh, speak coherently, they also seem to have a little bit of their own personality. And I'm not sure where they get that from. I, I'm really not. I mean, it should be, you would think the blended personality, you know, I think bunches of them are trained on the internet, which is a really frightening, <laughs> interesting idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, as you know, Microsoft re released its Twitter bot a couple of years ago now, um, trained it on Twitter, set it loose on Twitter, and within two hours, it was a thorough racist. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, I, I of course, I don't remember the exact name of it, but you can look it up in Google. These large, the current ones have been pretty carefully groomed not to be outward, right? hideous racists, but they even seem to have a little bit of personality. And I'm pretty confident that now, if not now, then at some point you'll be able to say and respond to me as a friend or as a politician or as a toxic narcissist or as whatever. Could you be a little shyer and laugh at my jokes more or whatever? Um, so th there may be an inevitability of, uh, of us projecting ourselves onto them, but I hope that at least some of it goes the other way where we get so used to the idea, I sort of, I hate to say this, this will come out wrong, but I'm sort of glad there's a moral panic about the fact that we don't understand and every mm -hmm. everything that machine learning systems do, they're, they're still inexplicable. Because we don't understand them, but we recognize they work, which is why we use them. But he, they work because, at least in some cases, because they're so far down into the details, the particulars, the minutia of, of, of the relationships among things. And those relation, that minutia and the relationships of those particular minute particles is how the world works. That's why the machine learning system works. It's reflecting something, it's reflecting a lot of things that are false about the world, but some really important things that are true about the world, namely that the world even if you have true generalizations and true laws about how the world operates, which we do, I like science, I, I like Newton, you know, um, we're capable of coming up with these generalizations. They're being applied to a world that is so, the universe is the most complex thing in the universe, and we're applying general rules to them, and we can never get the starting conditions that we're applying them to complete because you'd have to know everything about the universe, because everything affects everything all the time. That's the world that we live in. If machine, if the inexplicability of machine learning gets us more comfortable with that vision, then I think that is a truer vision of the world. And I'd be very happy if we adopted it. So I think that was one of the central themes of your book, but in trying to wrap up this conversation. Um, oh, go ahead and try. I'm going to try. <laughs> so <laughs> let me just say that we are, I think, probably the last generation that lived our lives relatively analog, um, you know, whereas information, decisions weren't made because we were co constantly consulting with some sort of a machine. And now increasingly, I'm making decisions about when I order stuff off of, uh, um, you know, off of various devices, internet enabled devices that I have at home. And it's just going to get more and more. So in this world, you you said in your book how 
the internet has stopped us from anticipating the future. And instead it's, it's helped us to imagine a set of possibilities. What are some other, you know, if you had to leave our audience with a couple of other key principles of your book, what would be the other ones that we haven't talked about? So I, I do think the internet has, is getting us, has gotten us used to chaos and to the benefits of not anticipating, unanticipating. It, however, most of what we do on the, even the internet is stuff that we are anticipating and preparing. Mm. But some big, we have huge successes modeled on the internet where that unanticipation worked better. For me, a really big part of it, and I don't know if anybody else cares about this, is a move away from looking to universal truths as the highest, best, and maybe the only real truths. Because that's where we've focused for a very mm. long time in the West. There's a tremendous value in that. I'm, you know, as I say, the a good organizing of general. Yeah, and explanatory as well, right? I'm, I'm, I would not want to go back on the search for universal um, principles for large-scale generalizations. But I'm hoping that machine learning, the, the way that machine learning and its success will open up paying more attention to the particulars when making decisions or thinking about how the world works. The Particulars may be guided by universals. In many cases, they are by general principles in the case of physics and the like. But we we can't apply them successfully because there are too many. But, you know, where's that piece of confetti? A confetto, I believe it's called. Where is it going to fall in Thanksgiving Day Parade? Well, we don't care because we don't care. But if we did care, we couldn't find out. We could do some statistical analyses. We might be able to use machine learning to give us a range and distribution and whatever. But we don't know why. Somebody coughed and that changed the air patterns i who knows they gestured with their hands somebody was doing sign language and that disturbs the air as well and we can't know these everything is really particular and if you take that and apply it to things like morality then i think your position about what makes something moral changes because you're not looking up at well, what are the universal moral principles that matter or the universal methodology if you're going to be utilitarian? Here's a case. What are the particulars? Two cases that are very similar. You can, you can have different moral mm -hmm. uh, outcomes. The general gets in the way often in our culture, I think, of, of paying attention to the particular. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think just one, I guess, final thought is that in your book, you you talk about how a lot of our systems were based on this great chain of being. This this idea that you know humans are at the very top. It's it's permeated our philosophy. It's permeated the way we actually view other species and other and our position in the universe. We're there to control others because we're at the very top of the chain of being, and we were given that position, this exalted position, by virtue of us being the darlings of um, you know, a supreme being. And whereas you point out, you know, it's that everything is connected and we really don't have that much control. Everything is connected to every, everything else. And we, we, sometimes there's the connections that we don't see and that we cannot explain that, uh, render a, a decision or render an outcome. That's very nicely put. Thank you. I wish I had said that. Let me put that a little bit differently. 
although I like yours better. We wander through a world. There's some elements that we can control. Most of it we cannot. Um, even who's in the who's in the you know crosswalk with you or whatever. Does the coffee machine work? We write that stuff off as well. That's just you know that's just the way it is. But we exert so much energy in trying to trying to control the world through tech and through everything mm. else. And understandably, because we don't want to die right away. But the notion that we are the masters of the world is, is it's a very Western and a very, if I may say, very male, mm -hmm. typically male. Uh, and people have been noticing this for a very long time. I oddly hope that even though machine learning is clearly a way of making better predictions and thus anticipating and controlling better, I oddly hope that its mechanism for doing so, that that success validates its method of doing so, which is all about finding small relationships, intersecting networks of small relationships that put together lead to a probabilistic result. And I just think that's a better yeah. better picture of, of the world and one in which we, we can't control, never yeah. could. Well, that's a, that's a very big realization that maybe some people aren't going to be very comfortable with. Um, but I, lo I love the intersection of philosophy, technology, machine learning, strategy, chaos. Um, and you pulled a very nice thread through it all with your book, <laughs> Everyday Chaos. Thank you. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.